cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with me, Kingsley Kipuri, on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As per usual, I'm going to be your host for the next hour, so thank you for tuning in and hanging out. What a past week we've had. Um, trying to be, follow it as per usual online and, you know, trying to wake up in the morning and check what's going on. Uh, one thing I was following quite closely was the situation with... Trump care, as some are calling it, uh, the, the, the antidote, the, the solution to the, to the disastrous Obamacare, as the Republicans call it. Um, and I've just been following via our first thing newsletter brought to you by the Daily Maverick on the updates on that. So it was fascinating to see the, the Republicans simply say that they just did not have a better alternative and withdraw, retreat and say, you know what? Um, we just don't have a better plan. If you're wondering how to get on the first thing newsletter, you can go to the dailymaverick.co.za, click newsletter, and you can sign up. Um, also brings to mind ideas around opposition politics. And when you have a party like the Republicans who've been in opposition for a while, simply owning up and saying, at least one of their leaders just owned up and said, it's different being on the opposition when you get to say no to everything. When you know your person is in charge and is going to sign what you put forth is a greater level of responsibility. So I wonder what that means for some of the opposition parties we have across the continent and, and some here, perhaps like the DA and the EFF. And what happens when you have to go from shouting the other man down and, and criticizing everything they do and when it's time for, for you to do it. So it's easy to say, you know, Zuma must be removed and and withdrawn and recalled and so on. But when Helen Zilla goes on Twitter and does her thing, what is the response from their side? Anyway, that's just been what's on my mind. Time to get into this week's show. Uh, you may have noticed that I'm flying solo today. So Senor Greg Nicholson is not with us today. Um, he's, he's, he's off, you know, save, saving the world and trying to be the truth in the era of fake news and alternative facts. So it'll just be me today. Uh, we've got quite, quite a packed show lined up. We'll be talking a bit about Marikana. Uh, that's almost five years on from the really tragic scenes we saw. And it's just asking, can we expect to really know the truth about what, what, what really, really happened over there and what led to the death of, you know, innocent people just really trying to make a living. And we'll be speaking to, you know, some of the attorneys who represent the families of the deceased mine workers. Secondly, we'll chat a bit about what's being described as Israeli apartheid and the UN has re recently passed a report calling it just that. Um, so we'll be taking, looking at the response from, uh, from the global community and seeing what it will take, uh, for really there to be some, some semblance of, of you know transparency and justice and a focus on human rights in that region and the last two focuses will be firstly around what some are describing as an African debt crisis where a lot of countries across the continent are taking on simply that just a lot of debt that a lot of saying is unsustainable so conversations around how much debt a different country is taking on what makes it responsible, what makes it irresponsible, and how do we govern this relationship between, you know, the first world, as some call it, who are the lenders, and the third world on this, and to make sure that it's fair, it's equitable, and and debt is not being used, you know, in a predatory manner to, to really, you know, keep keep certain people reliant on aid and reliant on, on the transfer of wealth in one direction. Lastly, we'll talk a bit about drones. Um, we often refer to this when we're talking about America's, you know, war on terror, as they like to call it, and the 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 use uh, that was really promoted by Obama's administration of drones and just sort of unmanned killing machines that go around and and really cause a lot of damage. And there's lots of questions as to who's then responsible. But we're going to flip that and talk more about how drones can be used to save lives. 
So we'll talk a bit about how this is being used in different countries across the African continent to deliver life-saving medicine and so on in really hard-to-reach areas. And, and it's really saying how can technology like this be a force for good. Okay, so we are just about jumping. First up, as mentioned, we'll be talking about Marikana. Um, so on the line, I have Kiamo Hetswe Tobahale, who's an attorney representing the families of the deceased mine workers over at SERI. That's the Socioeconomic Rights Institute. Uh, Kiamo Hetswe, welcome to the show. Thank you. How wonderful. So first, I'd just like to talk about the really, really tragic news that, that came out, uh, you know, a few, a few weeks ago. I think it was even last week about a, uh, you know, a certain, you know, mine worker called Mr. Uh, Sakhalala. Um, this is a 60 year old who was reportedly, uh, you know, shot twice by the police on 16th of August during, uh, the unrest we saw in Marikana. Um, and, and recently it's come out that the, that the, the, the narrative of what had actually led to the death uh, of this gentleman was not the truth. Um, and it actually turned out uh, that he that he died in a police vehicle at a detention center, and not in a hospital as had earlier been described. Now, now, Kemuhetsu, I'd just love to, you know, just just given your experience representing the families uh, of the mine workers and specifically uh, Mr. Sakalala, I'd love if you could just talk us through, you know, the information as you received it, as the as the families received it, and and, and their reaction to to what's coming out now. Um, I think uh, what what I would say to you is that when when we were going through that process of the Marigana Commission of Inquiry, um, there was lots of information that um, us as the parties and I think the commission as well relied on the police to have um, because they had been in charge of the operation and they were responsible obviously for many things that happened there mm. and. So when they provided uh, information, in fact, we even noted in our submissions to the commission that there was very little information around the circumstances of Mr. Sahalala's death. Um, it, it was very unclear how he died, where he died, and so on. But it became accepted in the commission that he had died in hospital. Mm. So we went through that process, um, and the report even comes out. And even in the report where he's mentioned, um, it also sort of stated there that he died in hospital. And then the, the president releases a media statement in December last year. And in it, there's mention of charges being brought against certain police officers for concealing a death in custody or something along those lines. Now, we then start asking questions, well, who is this and how did this happen? Mm-hmm. And again, we don't um, get direct responses about that. Uh, and I think that that is where it becomes a bit more painful for the families, that issues concerning their loved ones, issues concerning their kids, um, especially from the side of the state, will come out in the media. So we will hear about it on radio, we'll read about it in the papers, that, oh, actually, this is the case, this is how this happened. Um, and I think it's also a similar thing about which police officers are being investigated yeah. or which of them have been cleared. Mm. Um, that information doesn't come properly to, to the lab or to the family. Um, and, and then so it all just comes out in the media. 
I mean, I can only imagine the, the you know, the pain and the and the feeling of just the, the the tragic nature of finding out that the way you thought your husband, your father, your uncle died was was not the truth, and and someone's being charged for it, or maybe not, and you're finding about that, you know, the Daily Maverick on the radio, and I think what 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 this leads me to ask is. Does this then mean that there's there's a lot more information about what truly happened at Marikana that we just don't know and will just continue to emerge in sort of drips and drabs as we go along? Um, I think I think certainly there's a lot that we don't know. Um, there's a lot um, I think that may very well still come out, uh, and I think part of what Sir was doing in his advocacy campaign was to try and get. Um, some of the evidence that was before the commission and put it um, in a website where other people can also go and access it. Mm. Because there's, in, in terms of like sort of mainstream media and what information people also receive about what happened, mm. there are limitations. Um, and, and certainly I think if someone, if we're finding out now almost five years later how somebody died, I, I, I think there's cause to believe that there's a lot more information out there. Now, does this does this emerging news and you know what what seems to be evidence that the the, the account given by the police at the commission was not true? Does this make uh, you personally and perhaps the position of Seri that that we have reasons to question the the the, the whole Falam Judicial Commission and how much and how much truth actually came out of that? Um, I think I think it has always been our concern um, that especially when you see the, the commission's report, for instance, um, that there wasn't a, a very sort of thorough dealing with how each minor died. Mm. Um, and, and we've always had those concerns. And I think even during the commission of inquiry, uh, we had concerns about who was being called from the police side to come and give evidence. Um, because in that process, not all the people who were on the ground, police officers who shot, um, not all of them came to give evidence. So obviously that then means that there's some information that is not, um, that's not being dealt with in the process of the commission. Um, and, and I think, I mean, from, from the side of the families, there's that problem about how the state is treating them. Um, because you think about it, it's the police, it's the prosecution, all of this is part of the, the state machinery. And if the police are withholding information like this, um, and if the state is not apologizing, um, so, so, so all of that just sort of contributes to the unfairness with which the families have been treated. I mean, absolutely. I mean, one thing you've mentioned is, you know, as an apology. So I suppose the state or the commission of people involved saying, you know what, we could have done better. You know, we are sorry. But are there actual legal means where the families can step in and demand information in a certain way, demand to be informed in a certain way, perhaps, you know, demand that certain things go through them before they go to the media? Are there legal channels where the families can 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 ensure that the, the, the different parties truly recognize their role as a key stakeholder in the process of, of, of trying to arrive at some kind of justice for Marikana? And their dignity, um, certainly, um, and and that's what we are um, that's what we're concerned with now. Yeah. Um, so we are engaging in other processes to ensure to try and ensure as far as possible that that their dignity is maintained, that they are respected, and that they are treated like like people. That that it's not an offhand um, um, sort of treatment that they're given, but that they are given due regard um, in in this entire process. 
Okay. Now pivoting to the to the compensation conversations, you've been closely involved with the discussions around compensation with the state. Could you tell us a bit about how these negotiations negotiations are going and why it appears at least from an external view that to be taking you know very long? They are. <laughs> um I so I, I think uh we have we have over three hundred and twenty something claimants. Mm. Um, so those would be the individuals, um, and that's that's from all the six, six families. And I think the the delay has been in us seizing offer um, to the claimants. Now there's been a back and forth in discussions with with the state, and sometimes they want this information and that piece of information when we've provided it. Um, and and I think the delay is just in getting all of those offers to us. Um, what I can say is that we we are somewhat close to the end okay. um, with with that process, but I must also emphasize that the families made claims for various um, what we call heads of damages. So the whole thing about whether there's a settlement that's being discussed is limited only to the loss of support claims. Um, there are still claims for other damages like emotional shock mm. um, and, and others that go with it. So the, the settlement thing is not to settle the entire claim, but it's only dealing with the loss of support claims. Okay, and once that happens, is there a different process for the other claims? Um, my understanding is that the, the state wants to be in a position where they, they first deal with the loss of support claims and then move on to the rest. Okay, um, and, and is, um, is, is it fair to say that the, the the state is negotiating in good faith and really doing what they should be doing in regards to their their conduct with the family, specifically on the negotiation or on compensation? Um, well, at, at this point, I I don't have um, anything to say that they are they are not acting in in good faith. Okay, um, now pivoting to. The charges around police officers. Um, the NPA hasn't made any decision on whether to charge uh, police officers involved in Marikana, but there's some conversation around some perhaps being charged. So I just love your sense on whether these are, you know, encouraging, you know, signs or rumors, and whether the positive moves might we actually some see have to see some or might we actually see some officers having to stand up in court and sort of, you know, answer for what happened on the day. Um, again, I think from the perspective of the family, the, the first problem we have is we have asked. We have asked uh, how far is the process going in relation to, to the police and the state and possible prosecution. Um, and we we don't really have uh, a lot of information to go on. Um, and from the, the media reports we've seen, we've seen the X number of police who have apparently been cleared, the X number of police that may be charged. Um, from a principled position, I think we we welcome the investigation and we welcome any prosecution um, that would take place, uh, especially with um, police who were implicated at the at the commission. Mm-hmm. Um, but one at late, uh, as we started the conversation, we're saying that it's almost five years now. Yeah. Um, and and the second thing is because I'm not sure of the ambit of the investigation, but I can't even say anything beyond that. Yeah. Um, because I, I don't know, we can't say whether whoever's being considered is everybody that should be investigated. Yeah. Yep. 
I mean, understood, yeah. and it's you know, it's it's unfortunate that we're sort of having to rely on rumors as to what's going to happen on this front. Um, now, lastly, Kemohedzo, before I let you go, I just want to talk about the the awareness around around Marikana. Now, Seri has embarked on a public you know public campaign to inform the public on the on the harm and the and the realities of the families of the mine workers who who, who died at Marikana. Um, I just love to hear sort of your perspective on on how that's going and how to do that. Um, my sense is that it's quite difficult to maintain an informed and con- sort of considered public attention and pressure on something like Marikana f- for so long, in that you have this sense of tragedy and there's a sense of outrage, and then we, it seems to you know die away a bit. So I'd love I'd love to get your sense on on, on how that's going and how we can keep Marikana on the minds of you know everyday South Africans everywhere. Yeah. Uh, well, um, Serbia has got a very dedicated advocacy team, um, and I think that they are always sort of thinking of new ways to, to sort of keep things alive and, and in the public memory. So, with the recent campaign that we embarked on, um, there was a video that was launched, um, and in that video, you can see sort of the families of the mine workers also expressing how they felt about. Um, the massacre and they also express uh, how they feel about the lack of accountability and I suppose in, in, in some ways also expressing what justice to them would look like. Um, I think uh, it would be difficult for me to say how we can forever keep this out there, but what I can say is uh, we certainly do have a mandate to, to try and keep this issue out there for as far as possible and to ensure um, at least in, with the public uh, that they are aware that this happened and that justice has still not been served. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't put it better myself. And a big part of this is just the excellent work you're doing over there at Seri. So we, we thank you deeply for, you know, making sure that the families are well taken care of. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, wonderful. Uh, that's Kiamu Hetswe Tobahale, uh, an attorney representing the families of the deceased mine workers over at Seri. That's the Socioeconomic Rights Institute. Um, I mean, I... Like I said at the start, I just, I just, I can't imagine being a family member of somebody who was shot at Marikana and finding out in, you know, in the newspaper that police's account of what happened wasn't true, or finding out that somebody who was alleged to have died comfortably in a hospital bed or as comfortable as one can be actually died, you know, in police custody in a car somewhere and, and that not being true. Um, I just, I just can't imagine the horror that accompanies that. Um, so it's, you know, it's a massive credit to Seri for making sure that people and the right people stay informed. Um, and also a challenge to us, I suppose, in the media and everyday citizens around how do we, how do we keep pushing for justice or some sense of justice for the families of the people who were killed? How do we stay outraged? How do we stay interested? How do we apply our, Financial resources, our minds, our, our, you know, the little social capital we have as individuals to make sure that it doesn't fall off. Um, it's just so easy to get caught up in other things. Um, whether it's the, you know, it's the finance minister issue we saw the other day or the spur video and, and not to say none of these things are important, but, but, you know, how do we balance the, the social outrage amongst these different issues? I don't know. Anyway, just about to change topic. I'm going to play my little jingle here again. Uh, 
uh, you can tell I'm having fun with this. Don't make fun of me. Okay, switching gears somewhat. Um, we'll be talking a bit about what's being described as Israeli apartheid. Um, so we'll be speaking to Soraya Dadu, who's a researcher at Media Review Network. Soraya, can you hear us? Hi, Kingsley. Yes, Hi. I can hear you. Wonderful. Thank you. So, Soraya, I just want to talk about the, the UN report released recently around um, around what's going on in Israel. And I'd love if you could just talk us through, you know, fairly basically, what were the findings and why is this report getting so much attention? Okay, so firstly, the report that we're referring to is uh, a report that was released by the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the UN bodies. Um, and it's the first time that a UN report had concluded that Israel has established an apartheid regime that dominates the Palestinian people as a whole. And that is a pretty big statement to make. Um, And so I just want to explain exactly what this UN report defines as apartheid Mm. and actually generally what the world defines as apartheid. Mm. Because when you hear the word apartheid, people usually bring up images of South Africa, racial segregation, and of course everything that our country had gone through. So the term apartheid is defined in international law by the United Nations, and it's a law that came into effect in 1973, generally called the Apartheid Convention. And international legal scholars actually decided to come up with a universal definition of apartheid because they realized that South Africa could not be be all and end all of apartheid. There could be other apartheid regimes that might come up in the future. And so this a piece of legislation in terms of the Apartheid Convention defines apartheid as inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one group, one racial group, over another racial group. Essentially, that's the core of the definition. And so when this report concluded that Israel is an apartheid state, it mm. did so in terms of that specific definition. Okay. Um, other things that came up in terms of the report is how does Israel practice apartheid? So it does so, firstly, by fragmenting the Palestinian people. So when we speak of Palestinians, I mean, a lot of people, and I'm sure you yourself, probably think, okay, it's just the occupied territories. Um, that's usually the first yeah. thing that comes to people's minds. Um, but you have people who are in the occupied territories, so those people live in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. They are illegally occupied by Israel for the last 50 years. You also have Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, but they themselves have a whole host of uh, laws that discriminate against them. So everyone's a Jewish, so everyone's an Israeli citizen, but one group, particularly Jewish people within Israel, tend to be favored over the others. Uh, you also have Palestinians in East Jerusalem who are completely occupied, but they're neither Israeli citizens, nor are they even represented by the Palestinian Authority. So they're kind of in legal no-man's land. And what the report says is that you have all these different definitions and and, and locations of Palestinian people. They're all afforded so-called different rights and responsibilities. And that is one of the ways in which the Israeli government and its regime has fragmented the Israeli people. And most importantly, it's fragmented resistance to the occupation. I mean, that's, that sounds really damning, and, and, and I'm crucial as to why you think the UN has suddenly 
perhaps been so you know, clear and critical of what's going on and what's what you've seen as the international community's response to the report? Well, I kind of wish that I could agree with you that the UN uh, was being damning, but the story doesn't have a very happy ending after all. Mm. Um, so this report was released on Wednesday, two weeks ago. Um, and immediately, uh, first of all, the Israel's uh, UN envoy called the report an attempt to smear Israel. And then there was Nikki Haley, who is Donald Trump's representative at the UN. They demanded that the report be withdrawn. And the very next day, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres asked that the report be removed from the ESQA website. Um, and he then told the commission's head, Rima Khalif, to withdraw the report immediately. Khalif actually said that she stands by that report, uh, and she resigned. By Friday afternoon, she resigned. Uh, and rather than withdraw the report or, or uh, sort of backtrack on its findings, she said that she would rather leave. And, and what's really uh, uh, interesting is that in her resignation letter, she said to uh, Antonio Guterres, it is clear to me the kinds of pressures and threats to which the United Nations and you personally are subjected by states with authority and influence because of the publication of, these, of this report. Um, and she says that over the course of two months, I have been instructed to withdraw reports published by ESQA not for any error or shortcomings within the reports themselves and not because you yourself disagree with their content but because of political pressures from states implicated by their blatant violations of the rights of their people. So unfortunately, I mean, we're almost seeing the UN caving completely into pressure from Israel and the United States. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, that's actually a sense of deja vu, because if we think back to our own history, and it's something that we don't talk about much because we kind of had an, a happy ending in terms of dismantling the apartheid regime here. But most of your listeners might not be aware that when the, the Special Committee Against Apartheid was established by the United Nations in 1962, yeah. Western powers actually declined to join that committee and they boycotted it and they actually felt that a boycott of South Africa was not necessary. So we're kind of seeing again Western nations using their muscle to intimidate uh, a weaker nations, if I could say that, at the UN and to protect uh, their allies, even when they're committing serious human rights violations. I mean, you're, I mean, you're right. This just sounds so so reminiscent of some of the things that happened in the South African context. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, what happens now? You've got this, you know, put, put, you report that really had the potential to really perhaps galvanize the international community around you know around the facts that had come out but now you also have this pressure you have resignations and you have the UN it appears to be backtracking on what could have been a really strong position so what do you think we can expect now in terms of the position of the UN in terms of the the, the, the attitude and the response of some of the key countries that we need to take this seriously for any action to, to happen I think the South Africans we learn from our own history um, and we know too well that governments never, ever do the right thing. It is always people, civil society, religious groups, political groups, um, people on the ground that, that show their governments what is the right way. I mean, it's certainly what happened with South Africa. Mm. It was not governments that...
that led the way and the struggle against apartheid. It was the boycotters, it was people on the street in New York, in Addis Ababa, in Moscow, um, on the ground in London that that raised awareness. And that is actually what needs to happen now uh, in terms of the struggle against Israeli apartheid. Um, it's also interesting that you mentioned uh, uh, the, the similarities yeah. between apartheid South Africa and, and the world's reaction. What is a key, key uh, um, similarity is that South Africa um, had a very well-oiled, well-funded propaganda machine. And one of the key groups within this machine was called the Club of Ten. It was a group of businessmen who took out ads in newspapers and who published propaganda that said that the UN is singling out South Africa when you have communist countries that are doing much worse things to their people. And we see the very same thing playing out now today uh, where you have the Israeli government's propaganda machine that spills out the same lines. They say, look at Zimbabwe, look at Syria, you know, look at this country, what about? So what about it doesn't help because all those other countries aren't illegally occupying another people's country for over 50 years. Uh, those other countries haven't been found guilty of apartheid in terms of international law. So I think the similarities are, are striking in terms of propaganda. Um, Israel's propaganda machine also is very similar to South Africa in the sense that you have all these uh, offers of wonderful, fully funded study trips and, and tours of Israel. You get told about the wonderful technology that Israel can offer, especially African nations who are currently struggling with water scarcity, droughts, mm. um, agriculture. So, so uh, Party South Africa also offered the world technology and, and know-how in order to whitewash its crimes. And we see the Israeli government doing the very same thing now. Soraya, I know you've written a book about this. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can have you in studio one of these days to actually talk through your findings. But for now, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank you very much. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, uh, that was Soraya Dadu, um, who's a researcher at Media Review Network, who's written a book titled Why Israel, um, which is which aims to sort of reveal details on the Israeli apartheid and and, and, and put place that in a South African context. Um, how does that link to to apartheid as as institutionalized here or perfected, even some might say? Um, and and how do we get people on the streets to make sure that our governments do the right thing? Uh, I think one thing uh, Soraya mentioned that I find quite interesting. Thing is, is how states um, find it an effective defense to just point at the other guy. So when you say Israel is doing X, they say what about Zimbabwe? And we find it also happening here when the with the ICC. Um, whenever we have leaders who say, "Hey, you need to go to the International C- Criminal Court and answer for what you've done," Mr. Kurunziza or Mr. Uru Kenyatta, um, the response is simply, "You can't come to me if you don't try the other guy." Um, and and for me that just means nothing at all. Um, if you've done something wrong, if you're guilty or accused of crimes against humanity, then you're accused of crimes against humanity. And if you've done nothing, you need to go and answer and explain that you did nothing. And there's no relationship at all between whether or not you did and whether the other guy did or didn't do. And it's you know it's all very reminiscent of sort of a, a kid at a kindergarten playground and said um, he hit me first. Anyway, we're going to switch uh, topics slightly and talk a bit about uh, African debt. Uh, we'll be speaking to a director of an organization called Jubilee Germany. That's director Jürgen Kaiser, who's on the line. Jürgen, can you hear us? 
Yes, I can hear you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. So you can just to, to start, I'd just love to get a, a sense of your, of the trends that your organization and your collective is picking up around current third world debt and specifically African debt and the, and the, and the kind of debt that the different nations are taking on. Mm, yeah, we have just published what we call the Global Sovereign Debt Monitor here in Germany along the uh, G20 Finance Ministers meeting. And what we do in that publication is that we look at global trends of loan taking and loan giving among rich countries and poor countries. And what we see is that we have a steep rise of uh, countries that uh, are reaching critical debt levels in Africa, but also in other parts of the world. Uh, for instance, uh, to, when we did this calculation two years ago, we had 83 countries around the globe, which had one, several, or all indicators in a critical range. And we now have 116. You know, indicators means that we look at uh, how much debt countries have taken out in relation to their economic capacities. Uh, debt in absolute terms is not necessarily a problem, but if you see a mismatch between uh, the debts that have been taken out, the debt service that has to be paid, and countries' gross national income or uh, countries' uh, regular fiscal income, then uh, you may be in trouble, and that's what many countries are. Um, so what's going on? What's behind this? What, what, what's enabling countries who it sounds like shouldn't be able to take on this level? What's enabling to take uh, them to take on so much debt? Well, on the one hand, it's the investment needs that many countries, uh, including in Africa, definitely have. I mean, they have uh, weak infrastructure and uh, there's indeed a huge need to to invest there. However, this has been so for decades or even centuries, and uh, no big wave of investments has been promoted like it is being promoted at the moment by the so-called Group of 20, uh, including at the last uh, finance minister's meeting that we have just had two weeks ago. And what drives this process at this moment in time is definitely the differentials between the interest that you can earn by investing in Germany or other industrialized countries and African countries paying 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 percent on uh, uh, treasury bonds, for instance, which is a very, very attractive uh, investment sphere for investors in the global north. And, and, and as you watch these trends and as you sort of dug into the research for your report, um, you've raised that we've had a debt crisis before in the 70s and 80s. Could you talk us a bit through what, what was seen during that time and how this is somewhat reminiscent of that? Yeah. Well, it's indeed very, very similar. It's at times striking to see how the similarities are. You know, the so-called debt crisis of the third world started in uh, August of 1982 which means roughly 35 years ago, mm. when Mexico declared its default. And if we look at the history of this debt crisis, how the build-up actually happened, what we saw was that at that time, interest rates were low in the global north, and uh, governance was poor in many African or Latin American countries, which were run by dictatorships or other authoritarian regimes. And then we had... Uh, 
a veritable process of long pushing by particularly banks at that time from, from the West who sought investment opportunities in Africa and Latin America. And that's what happened and very, very quickly drove uh, a lot of countries over the cliff. And uh, so Mexico was the first country that had to declare default in August 1982, but others followed very, very quickly. And the global community did not provide any sensible opportunity to relieve countries from that over-indebtedness. So what happened was that we had a protracted crisis where countries continue to pay what has long since been unpayable, while uh, they had no real opportunity to renegotiate that debt. That only started at the end of the 1980s and in, in the early 1990s. And from the mid-1990s onward... Sorry, go ahead. Then, all, <laughs> then also some of the African countries got the opportunity to obtain debt relief under what was called the Heavily Indebted Poor Countries Initiative. And that, in, in some parts, uh, the very far-reaching debt relief now provided the opportunity for a new cycle of indebtedness. Now, you've pointed to in your findings the example of uh, uh, Mozambique, which it, which, which it appears is not is not doing well under the pressure that's been it's been uh, uh, it has taken on. Could you just talk us through a case study like that about how a, how a who a, how a country like that, which you know, with large large resources and, and some might say a lot of potential, could cave under the pressure of this large debt? Mm-hmm. Um, well, Mozambique was actually one of the 36 countries that have obtained that relief under the so-called HIPIC MDRI initiative in the 1990s and early 2000s. And it did uh, pretty well immediately after the debt relief. And what happened in Mozambique then was that uh, the huge uh, gas, re- natural gas resources were discovered off the coast and the government decided to build the future development of Mozambique onto the exploitation of those gas resources. So if you want to drill gas uh, offshore, then you have huge investment needs, which the country is by far not able to mobilize uh, domestically. So it has to go out to international capital markets. And that's what it did. And this caused uh, the debt indicators of Mozambique to rise. You had international um, organizations like the International Monetary Fund who gave their blessings to these processes that uh, promised high profits to those who invested there. But always with the caveat that everything needed to go extremely well in terms of actually building the infrastructure and uh, the prices needed to remain high. What we now saw was that the uh, the prices for oil and uh, consequently also the prices for gas went down and the uh, perspectives for the future income when the gas will come on stream are, are bleaker than they used to be. Uh, at the same time, the Mozambican society or, or the, the uh, Mozambican state is not as stable as you would wish it to be. So the government found that it had to do huge investments, for instance, into the protection of the uh, gas uh, exploitation platforms and also in what they call domestic security. So what happened was that in the Mozambican case, 
Loans were taken out by some parastatal organizations, MATUM, MIM, and ProIndicus, which were hid away from the IMF because otherwise the country would have disqualified itself from the concessional uh, loans from international lenders. And that's what the government tried to avoid. So they hid those debts away from from uh, the, the IMF. And when it came out, uh, it was a huge problem. It turned out to be a huge problem for Mozambique. And the country has proven to be unable to service all its debts since the beginning of this year. Now, now, Jürgen, some people listening to this and following this story might say, why do we need to have a conversation around debt restructuring? If a, if a, if a nation that's got democratically elected leaders takes on debt, then it's its, its responsibility to figure out how to pay that. Why, why is a conversation needed about how this is unfair and may need to be restructured? If you, you know, some people look mm-hmm. at this and say, if you take on a responsibility, you know, you need to figure out how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, that's, practically impossible, not only for governments in Africa, but also for governments in Europe. You may remember that Europe is still in the middle of a crisis in Greece, which has quite a few similarities with what I've just described about Mozambique. You know that Greece was an attractive destination for investments. Everybody believed that states could not go bankrupt. So loans were provided with open hands. And then when it came to paying back and uh, the uh, the global financial crisis erupted in 2008, it turned out that even in industrialized countries, an EU member like Greece would be unable to do so. And we had a huge crisis, we still have a huge crisis here uh, in Europe. And the same is true for Mozambique. You know, you there, there is no clear distinction between loans that you will be able to repay and those that you will not be able to repay. Some some cases are pretty blatant. You know, if you buy weapons or other things, then mm. you you will be in trouble when it uh, when you have to pay back. But the investments uh, for which Mozambique took took out its loans, in principle, they make sense. But what happens, I mean, who pays the price when things go wrong, when gas prices go down or when the country is hit by a drought and the two causes, the two things coincided in the case of Mozambique. So this is why we need an international mechanism that allows countries uh, in a rule of law based way to deal with such situations. What we are not having at the moment and what we did not have back in the 1980s. Absolutely. Jürgen, I really wanted to dig more into some of your findings, but unfortunately we've run out of time. I'm sure we'll speak more again in the future. Thank you so much for chatting to us and for the important work you're doing on this. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead. Okay, Okay, bye-bye. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm so fascinated about the conversations we're having about debt and specifically the, the article, I think that ran in The Guardian. I dare say perhaps a month, maybe, uh, maybe more than that, just around the relations of, you know, the third and first world around debt and financial aid and of course illicit financial flows. That is now an important addition to the lens with which we view the flow of money across the world. Um, where the previous narrative was that aid flows in one direction and you must say thank you for the, for the, for the amazing aid you're getting. But if on the flip side, people are evading taxes to make sure they can't pay that into your fiscus. If on the flip side, people are using debt in a way that's predatory, um, to make sure that, you know, they call the shots at the end of the day, then I think we really need to have a, a, a rethink about, about, 
you know who's actually funding who and when what and, and 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 on whose backs whose expenses are being paid um so i love that conversations around you know restructuring debt are being are being had in a way that that learns lessons from the you know 70s and 80s crisis that 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 Jürgen um just explained and secondly i think or secondly and thirdly i think we 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 can't have the conversation without talking about illicit financial flows and and we can't have the conversation without talking about tax evasion okay we're just going to the last portion of the show and we'll talk be talking a bit about drones uh often when we mention drones people think about killing machines that the the u.s has sent to good far off lands to to cause damage and destruction uh independent journalist zoe flood who i'm just about to speak to who's reported extensively in sub-saharan africa has done some wonderful reporting about how you know how drones can be used to actually save lives and and overcome massive service delivery challenges that we have um zoe can you hear us I can indeed. Okay, wonderful. Um, Zoe, uh, we don't have too much time, but I'd just love if you could just sort of set the context on how drones are a, are a lovely way through which technology can help us, you know, d- deliver services uh, across, across some tough terrains across the continent. Sure. So, I mean, I think that in the African context, drones are particularly of interest, and we're seeing this across both sort of government and commercial uh, sectors um, as people are exploring ways to deliver services, um, thinking about cargo delivery, medical supplies uh, to particularly remote areas where it's otherwise almost impossible to get to, especially in a timely fashion. And this becomes very relevant around um, emergency medical supplies such as blood or vaccines, which are, are time critical and often have an expiry time on them. They, they won't last necessarily for more than a few days. Uh, vaccines need to, need to remain refrigerated. So often getting them there by road in, in difficult across difficult terrains with difficult logistics is, is, is near impossible. So this, this, this is a really interesting application of um, unmanned aerial vehicles for, for delivering such items. And you've looked at some incredible case studies. I'd love to chat a bit about uh, Rwanda um, and how, you know, you know, different allowances of legislation and government partnerships and, and just really, you know, clever people coming together have enabled drones to be used to, to deliver medical essentials. So Rwanda is a very interesting um, uh, test case for medical drone deliveries uh, pretty much in the world, not just in Africa. Uh, a California-based company called Zipline, which um, you know works with engineers formerly from NASA, Boeing, so a very experienced set of, of aeronautical and robotics engineers, they have worked to develop a fixed-wing drone to deliver in, in its first phase to deliver blood supplies across Rwanda. And they're, in, they're working in partnership with the Rwandan government, which is very critical in the sort of area of innovation around drones because it relies on governments to be open about legislation and to, um, to open up their airspace effectively so that these kind of test, test cases can happen. Mm. So Zipline um, has been developing uh, its product uh, through last year. They previewed it earlier in the year and they started commercial operations in Rwanda uh, in October. And they um, they 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 deliver delivering up to sort of fifty to one hundred and fifty um, blood deliveries per day to uh, facilities within a, a forty seven mile radius of, of the capital Kigali, um, and they're looking to later add other items to those deliveries. Now, what's quite interesting about their um, uh, UAVs or drones is that they don't land. 
So there's no danger of um, people being injured. Uh, there's no potential for technical failure. They basically stay in the sky the whole time and, and make their deliveries by, by deliveries by parachute. I mean, that's incredible. And, and there's also some really clever use here in South Africa in, in, in the anti-poaching space that you've covered. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of interest over in recent years as the uh, poaching crisis has deepened across the continent in what way drones can be used to in, in, in wildlife surveillance. Um, this is relatively nascent still, although there's been lots of different um, attempts across the continent. But in, in South Africa, there has been... Um, anti-poaching surveillance solutions that have been tested in, in Kruger and KwaZulu-Natal um, national parks. And they are particularly useful at night. Um, there is some debate in the conservation sector whether drones should replace boots on the ground. Um, but the uh, organization, the South African company called UDS, which has been developing this this drone in, in South Africa, their argument is that whilst rangers on the ground are absolutely essential, drones, especially at night, can, can help protect those rangers and can help direct their efforts to where there might be poachers that are encroaching on different parts of reserves. So those rangers can go straight to where there's an incident. I mean, this, this all sounds, you know, you know, revolutionary and, you know, that's saving lives and, you know, protecting wildlife. And I can only imagine the, 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 the wide variety of applications that we could use this. I think, Zoe, just the one thing that comes to mind and this, and this has been discussed is the, is how it feels like sometimes uh, technology and drone technology seems to be outpacing legislation. And there's so many questions around ethics and what happens if, if uh, a drone does X or Y, who is responsible, and, and also fear around security and that if suddenly we have drones everywhere, that perhaps there's a threat of terrorism and so on. It appears to just be fear of the unknown. So could you just talk a bit about some of the legislative challenges and, 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 and how you see these unfolding? Sure. So I think um, there is definitely a lot of fear and, and nervousness around drones, um, particularly at the government level, not just not just across the African continent, but in other countries worldwide. There's sort of a new area that has typically been associated with military use. Mm. Um, so the idea of civilian or commercial use is very nerve wracking for governments. Um, obviously, from a surveillance security perspective, uh, people get very concerned. There have been a number of incidents um you know, in, in, the, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, where hobby drones have come dangerously close to aircraft. So there's a lot of a lot mm. of dangers involved with drone usage. So their their legislative control or their regulatory control is really important. Um, there are some who argue that because Africa's civil a aviation regulations are perhaps less developed than in some Western countries, there is actually room for rolling out more innovative um, aviation reg reg regulations around drones on this continent. Um, there's certainly efforts. I'm based in Kenya and Kenya sort of sh sort of closed down its uh, sort of drone operations a few years ago. It banned um, all sort of civilian commercial drones. But there are regulations that are um, in a draft form now. And there is a round that's been opened up for sort of applications for licenses and so on. So I think that we'll see, we'll start to see governments developing that. I think a lot of governments are aware of the many applications of drone technology. And I think we'll start to see in some of the more um, innovative economies, draft legislation that, uh, that, that will allow for a limited and, you know, relatively highly regulated 
um, and monitored uh, use of drones. But, uh, you know, as I said, within within fairly strict bounds. Absolutely. Zoe, thanks so much for your excellent reporting across the continent. And I'm sure there's a lot that, you know, we can learn and hopefully we can sort of uh, lead the way in the world uh, on the on the use of, of drones in, in service delivery. Thanks so much. Okay, wonderful. If you're just tuning in, that's Zoe Flood, uh, the independent journalist who's worked a lot across the continent and did a sort of excellent report on the use of drones, and we'll we'll share the link to that on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Um, flying solo today, so I'm sure you're sick of hearing my voice, and, and hopefully Comrade Nicholson will join us uh, at some point in the future. But thank you so much for listening. Uh, remember, you can download and share the podcast far and wide, and, and we appreciate you sp- sort of spreading the work we do and, and giving us feedback on what we can do better and different angles we can cover. As per usual, we'll see you next week, 1 to 2 p.m., Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Same time, same place. Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.